I am from here. I married my high school sweetheart. We went to Pickerington Central together not too long ago. And uh, we got married and headed off to sunny California. And we went to seminary there. And I remember when we first got there, we were actually talking about this yesterday at dinner with some folks. And I remember when we first got there, she said, you have two years. And uh, then we're going back and no kids, right? MDiv takes four years. She gave me two years. So she was really gracious. And uh, within six months, the Lord just so blessed us in our time in seminary that uh, we end up staying there almost 12 years. So I'm still in school. I feel like I'll be in school for the rest of my life. But a year into seminary, she got pregnant. Remember I said, she said two years, no babies. And we went to Grace Community Church, and there's like 8,000 babies. And so she caught the bug, and so we got pregnant about a year into our marriage. We had our first daughter, first child. Her name was Charlie. She's now nine years old. My, how time flies. Now keep track of the names because there will be a quiz at the end. So you have Chaz. My wife's name is Chelsea. And then we had our first baby girl. Her name is Charlie. Two years later, we had our our middle daughter, and her name is Charity. So you have Chaz, you have Chelsea, you have Charlie, you have Charity. And then two years after that, you notice in a pattern, we had our son, and his name is Chaden. So you have Chaz, Chelsea, Charlie, Charity, Chaden. I do not recommend the cha-cha-cha thing. It's very confusing, especially seeing as We also have a chocolate lab named Champ. So we are fans of tongue twisters, to say the very least. About a year or so ago, I began candidating at a church in Columbus in Clintonville, right across from the Park of Roses, Calvary Bible Church, an old historic Bible-based church. Been there a long, long time, almost 100 years. I began candidating because... I struck up a friendship with Pastor Eric, who's the senior pastor there, and he was finishing up his doctor of ministry at the Master's Seminary. And so I began candidating, and my wife fell in love with the idea of coming back to where we're from. And so I accepted the call to come be the associate pastor at Calvary Bible Church. We've been there now for six months, and we are currently living in Pickerington. So the prodigal son has returned. As J.D. said a few months ago, we were in a prayer group together, and, and he had mentioned that there may be some opportunities in the future, seeing as his wife was pregnant again. This is the third, fourth, fifth, seventh. Okay. There may be an opportunity to come minister to you, so I, I jumped at the opportunity. I remember a few weeks back, he said, Chaz, do you believe in free speech? I said, I do. He said, well, then come give one. So here I am (laughs) to come give you a free speech. I want to label the message tonight simply, abiding in Christ and the fruitful life. Donald Gray Barnhouse says that in Hampton Court near London, there is a grapevine under glass. It is about 1,000 years old and has but one root, which is at least two feet thick. Some of the branches are 200 feet long. And because of the skillful cutting and pruning, the vine produces several tons of grapes every year. Even though some of the smaller branches are 200 feet from the main stem, they bear much fruit because they are joined to the vine and allow the life of the vine to flow through them. The same is true of the true vine, Jesus Christ. The secret to a fruitful life is simply abiding in Christ. And that is what John 15 is all about. With that said, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles with me to this well-known passage of John's Gospel. I'll read verses 1 through 11, and I invite you to follow along. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. 
John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In a Sunday school class, a teacher was trying to show the dependence of the branches upon the vine. She says, for if the vine lives, the branches live also. She said again earnestly, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches of the vine and derive all of our joy, love, and spiritual nourishment from him. Yes, said one bright little eight-year-old, Jesus is the vine. And that means that grown-up people are the branches and we are the little buds. When Jesus says, I am the vine, it really is that simple. A truth so simple that an eight-year-old can hardly fail to comprehend it. And as branches, Jesus says that we are to bear much fruit. Jesus is talking about fruit. Fruit comes up over and over and over again in our passage. And the secret to bearing fruit, Jesus says, is to abide in me. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, Jesus is saying, I am the key to fruitfulness. He says we need to be like a baseball at Wrigley Field and lodge ourselves in the vine if we are going to bear fruit and hit ground doubles in the Christian life. Simply, we draw our lives from our union with Christ, and it is in this union that the source of our fruitfulness is found. Simply, Christ is the source of our fruitfulness. I believe it was the Puritan Cotton Mather of whom it was said that while on his deathbed, when asked by his son and his soon successor for some word that they could remember him by, the word he gave his son and his successor was the word fruitful. The question is, how will you be remembered? What's the word those closest to you would use to describe you. I submit tonight that if you are a Christian, then the overmastering positive passion of your life should be fruitfulness. And Jesus is saying, I am the key to that. And so what you and I need is to have a vital connection with Jesus Christ, the true vine. And if you know how to draw on his pulsating life like a branch does with the vine, then you will live a fruitful life. Now, how do we do this? Jesus says, to do this, you have to believe three truths. I love what David Paulison in his book, Speaking the Truth in Love, speaking of spiritual growth, character change, and fruitfulness, says in so many words, there is no magic, no technique, no sure cure. Fruitfulness comes down to one thing, trusting, believing, and obeying the truth. I think I speak for all of us when I say that most of our problems in this life stem from the lies that we believe or the truths that we disobey.
Jesus says that there are three truths that we must believe if we are going to bear much fruit. We have to believe, first, that God is the gardener. We also have to believe that Jesus is the true vine. And then thirdly, that we are the branches. That's our outline. Very simple. God is the gardener. Jesus is the true vine. And we are the branches. The gardener, the vine, and the branches. It's like one of Aesop's fables. Let's look at the first truth. We must believe God the Father is our gardener. And as we come to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, let me just set the stage a little bit. You know this, starting in chapter 13 and running through chapter 16, we find ourselves on Thursday night of Passion Week. And Thursday night was an important night. He gathered with the 12 to celebrate the Passover on that Thursday night, and they met together in kind of a a secret place, which we'll call the, the upper room. And our Lord spent that night telling the men many wonderful things, giving them many wonderful promises. And as that night moved on, Jesus exposed Judas as the traitor and dismissed him. And Judas left to go meet the leaders of Israel in order to arrange for the arrest and subsequent crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. By the time we come to chapter 15, Judas is gone and only the 11 are left and they are the true disciples. And as we come to chapter 15, they are no longer in the upper room. It's deep, dark into the night. For chapter 14 ends with Jesus saying, get up, let us go from here. Apparently at that time, Jesus and the 11 left the upper room and they began their walk through Jerusalem. They headed out the east side of the city to a garden where our Lord would pray, prayer so agonizing that he would literally sweat drops of blood. And while he was praying, his disciples would be fast asleep. Into that garden later would come Judas and the Roman soldiers to arrest him, and there Judas would kiss him. That betrayal would take place, and then the next day Jesus would be crucified. And I can just imagine as they passed by the temple where they were, where according to Josephus, there were giant gold grapevines with clusters of grapes that adorned the front of the holy place of the temple. He says the grape clusters were as tall as a man and so large round that they had to be suspended between two men to be carried. What a picture. And I believe it is that as their backdrop that Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Jesus says, if you are going to live a fruitful life, first you must believe that God is the gardener. Now, what's so amazing about this, and you know this, is John records seven I am statements throughout the gospel. In chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. And then a little bit later, again in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11 and verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 14 and verse 6, he says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now, in this seventh I am statement, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. This final I am statement is the only one where Jesus makes God the Father an explicit part of the metaphor. He says, I am the true vine and my Father is the the gardener. Hagergos in Greek. He says the, the vineyard, which includes both the vine and the branches, needs someone to care for it. And that special someone is God himself. Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser. He says, God is the one who cares for the vine and cultivates the vineyard. To put it in layman's terms, God has a green thumb. And so when Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser, he's saying at least three things to us. First off, in saying that God is the gardener, he is pointing us to God as our father. He says, my my father is your father and our father is the gardener. Jesus says, God is our gardener. 
He's like the vineyard keeper who comes looking for fruit on the fig tree without finding any. And instead of cutting it down or grumbling, why does it even use up all of this ground? He gets his hands dirty. He digs around it and puts in fertilizer until it bears much fruit. You see, Jesus wants us to see the Father's patience. He wants us to see the Father's care. He wants us to see the Father's kindness. You see, God the Father, your caretaker, is so compassionate towards you and is so committed to getting fruit out of you. He is so concerned for your well-being that he is willing to get his hands dirty to prove it. Second, Jesus, in calling the Father our gardener, says we must know that the Father is looking for fruit. See, when you know your daddy is watching, it makes you want to bear much fruit for him. It makes you want to blossom where you are planted. God is looking for fruit. Therefore, everything you do should be as if he's watching because he is. And you should do it for his glory. Isn't that what it says in verse 8? My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Look, God's primary plan for your life is that you would be fruitful for his glory. And know this, God is working on your heart to that end. He is working on you right now. And the reality is you should have been cut down long ago. That's why in verse 2 it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And again in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. But like the father in the, par in the parable of the prodigal son, no matter how many promises you have broken, no matter how late you are to the party, no matter what your record is, no matter what you've done, no matter how black or bleak, Jesus says that if you come back to the Father, he will never cut you down. This is what it means that God, the Father, is our gardener. But it also means that God will not just leave you alone so that you can just bear your fruit. He says, but that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it can bear more fruit. You see, God is never satisfied. He wants more fruit for you. God wants your life to go from much fruit to more fruit. But for that to happen, he's got to prune you. God is an expert at producing fruit and God plants and he prunes. God plants us on purpose where he knows we can grow the best. He sovereignly tills the environment and providentially arranges the soil in which growth can take place. He is the great vine dresser. Now, all in favor of honesty, raise your hand. We struggle with this, don't we? Because many times we don't understand why God plants us where he does. And if we can be honest tonight, tell the truth, shame the devil, right? We don't like where God has planted us. So we have times where we say in our hearts, if not out loud, God, if you really are there, why am I really here? But see, it is believing that God is your father and that God is the gardener that you can rest assured that God knows what he is doing. Where you are is not by accident or coincidence, but by providence. And it's when you plant yourself in God's love that you will blossom where he has planted you, even when it feels like the God who loves you is trying to kill you. Let me ask you, can a plant ever wander from the heat, light, or power of the sun? Then how can you ever wander from the love of your father? You see, it's not about your geography, it's about God. It's not about where you are, it's about whose you are. And God plants us on purpose where he knows we can grow the most. Do you believe that this evening? Because if you do, then you will blossom wherever God has planted you. And remember, very practically, God is either loosening your roots to get ready to move you, or he is deepening your roots to get ready to use you. And if he's going to use you, guess what? He's going to prune you. Verse 2 says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it can bear more fruit. 
Prune is the word kathare in Greek. And it's the word from where we get our word cathartic. You know what this means. It means that God is the gardener. Then naturally one could expect that he is going to use some fertilizer. God uses fertilizer to get us to grow. You know what fertilizer is? It's that dirty, smelly, nasty stuff that we put in our yards that makes our plants grow. But see, Jesus says that dirty, nasty, smelly fertilizer is necessary. We have to be like John Newton, who says everything is necessary that he sends, and nothing can be necessary that he withholds, even if it's fertilizer. Because if you were not for the fertilizer, God would not get out of you what he has planted in you. God prunes and purges and pricks you so that you can bear more fruit. I think Merrill Tinney said it best when he says, Viticulture consists mainly of pruning. In pruning a vine, two principles are generally observed. First, all dead wood must be ruthlessly removed. And second, the live wood must be cut back drastically. Dead wood harbors insects and disease and may cause the vine to rot, to say nothing of being unproductive and unsightly. Live wood must be trimmed back in order to prevent such heavy growth that the life of the vine goes into the wood rather than into the fruit. The vineyards in the early spring look like a collection of barren, bleeding stumps. But in the fall, they are all filled with luxuriant purple grapes. As the farmer wields the, the pruning knife on his vines, so God cuts the dead wood out from among his saints and often cuts back the living wood so far that his method seems cruel. Nevertheless, from those who have suffered the most pruning, there often comes the greatest fruitfulness. All that to say, God is the gardener, and he loves you, and he's looking for fruit from you where he has planted you. And to do that, he's got to prune you. And this means that the vine dresser will use the pruning knife, and it may be sore and mysterious, but he never makes a mistake, and nothing he does is ever wasteful as he makes us, by his grace, more and more fruitful. Look, do you want to know how to tell whether or not you are, fruit, you are a fruit-bearing Christian? Here is the, the litmus test for whether you are a true branch or a false branch. It is, are you willing to pray for God's pruning? John Stott says the serious Christian prays to be pruned. Are you willing to be pruned? If you want to enjoy more fruit or much fruit in your life, then you have to be willing to be pruned. And not only willing, but so eager for it that you pray for it. And so if you, if you are going to live a fruitful life, then you must believe that God is the gardener. But secondly, you must believe that Jesus is the true vine. Let's look at what it means to really believe the truth about Jesus as the true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. He says again, I am the vine. Ego me. Here, Jesus is revealing another powerful declaration of his divine nature, and he says, I am the true vine. I am the vine. Jesus is none other than the great I am. You know this. In John 8, 58, he says, truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was born, I am. He is the eternal God in human flesh. He is the divine vine. Some say, well, he referred to himself as the vine because a vine is lowly, and that speaks to his humanity. This speaks to his lowliness. And because the vine is in the earth, and if the vine weren't, weren't propped up with some kind of wires or something, it would just kind of run along the ground. Somebody else might say to refer to Jesus as the true vine speaks of, of union or communion. It speaks of the closeness and communion of those who are Christ with him, abiding in him, having his pulsating life flowing through them into the branches. Some might say that this is a, a great word picture because it talks about fruit bearing and, and fruitfulness, which the result of being in the vine is made manifest. Others would say that it illustrates dependence upon the Lord. As Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. That is to say, our life, our fruit comes from the vine. I think all of that is true. But there is another reason why Jesus says, I am the true vine. 
And that is because there was a defective vine. There was a corrupted vine. There was a degenerate vine. There was an empty vine. There was a fruitless vine. There was a dried up vine. You know what that vine is? You know who that vine was? It was Israel. Israel was God's vine in the Old Testament. Israel was the vine, and that carried through the Old Testament all the way into the Maccabean period. The Maccabeans minted coins, and on those coins was a vine illustrating Israel. The vine was the symbol of Israel. So Jesus comes along and says, if you want to be connected to God, you have to be connected to me. If you want to be connected to the true vine, you have to be connected not to Israel, but to me. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the the true vine as opposed to Israel being the, the false vine. He says, I am the perfect vine, and it is through me that the life of God flows. It is through me that you will bear fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul says as much in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7. He says, we are firmly rooted and now are being built up in him to bear fruit. Jesus, as the true vine, is the savior of the plants and the source of their power. Jesus is the true vine. You say, is that important to believe? You better believe it. Listen to this in John chapter 8 and verse 24. He says, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless that you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Can I say it another way? If you don't believe in Jesus as the true vine, you could go to hell. It's that simple. If you don't believe that Jesus is the divine vine, that is, if you don't believe in the deity of our Lord, Jesus Christ, you are a false branch. No matter how religious you are, no matter how moral you are, if you do not believe that Jesus is God, you could go to hell. Jesus says you will die in your sins. The penalty is that you will be thrown away as a branch and dried up and they will gather you and cast you into the fire and you will be burned. You say then how can I know that I know that I know that I have a vital connection to the true vine? He tells us in verse 2, he says, every branch in me. You see, we have to be in Christ. It's one word, abide. He says, abide, minnow in Greek. It means to, to be at home in, to hang out with. I love how Max Licato defines it. He says, Abiding means to hold on tight. He says, never let go of Jesus. Never release the vine. It's like when a father leads his four-year-old son down a crowded street. He takes him by the hand and he just says, hold on to me. Hold on, I got you. Just hold on to me. He doesn't say, hold on to the map. Memorize the map. He doesn't say, take your chances at dodging, dodging oncoming traffic. He doesn't say, let's see if you can find your way home on your own. No, a good father doesn't do that. A good father gives the son one responsibility, and that is to hold on to his hand. And our goal is just to hold on to Christ. And that is precisely what it means to abide. We are to hold on and never let go of Jesus. And this is what John means when he says abide. Look at verse 4. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides, there's our word again, in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Ten times in 11 verses, Jesus uses The word abide, because that's what we have to do. We have to abide. But it's that last one that I think is the key to it all in verse 9, where it says, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you want to know that you know, that you know, that you know, that your fruit will show, then you have to abide. And you have to abide in his love. Now, now what does it mean to abide in his love? Here's what you do. You meditate on his love for you. The word meditate means to abide. 
It means to dwell in, to dwell on. When you think about meditation, remember, you want to be like roots and not like pipes. And the notion is that water runs through both roots and pipes, but as the water runs through the pipes, it has no positive effect on the pipe. In fact, it is, there's rust and coercion that happens over time. But as the water passes through the tree, as the water passes through the roots, it has an incredible effect on the tree. The tree gets stronger in the process. The roots grow deeper in the process. And in the end, because of the water, it bears much fruit. Thus, in, a, in abiding or in meditating, our lives are to be more like roots and not like pipes. It's when we drink down deep the water of the word. It's when we abide in his word. It's when we abide in his love that we will enjoy a joyful and fruitful relationship with him. In other words, abiding in Christ is not like a pipe. A pipe would draw the water in, one end, and what would come out the other end? Water. But abiding in Christ is like a tree or like a root. It draws water in, and what comes out the other end? Fruit. You say, okay, but, but how do I do this? You abide in the truth that Jesus loves you so much that he laid down his life for you. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. He is that one. He is that man. And he calls you friend, and he loves you to the end, John 13, verse 1. He loves you to the max. He loves you to the uttermost, to infinity and beyond. And his love is, watch this, abiding, abounding, and absolving. This is what it means. This means that Jesus carries on with you to this day in love. He loves you every second of every hour of every day for all eternity. And it is true. If you did nothing today, nothing tomorrow, or everything today and everything tomorrow, his love for you remains the same. He stays with you with a, a steadfast, never-ending, always abounding love. He loves you when you have no thoughts of him. He loves you when you have the highest, loftiest thoughts of him. He loves you just the same. He loves you when you sleep at night. He loves you when you wake up in the morning. He loves you. He never stops loving you. And this is not just a, a wide, a deep, a long, a high love, an abounding love. This is an abiding love. This is an abiding love. If you were to dive into the ocean that was God's love and you were to swim for a thousand years, you would never, ever come close to reaching the shore. Better yet, if you were to swim and dive a thousand leagues down into the ocean for those a thousand years, you would never, ever come close to reaching the bottom. Even more, if you were to swim for a thousand years and to dive deep a thousand leagues looking for your sin, you wouldn't find it because his love absolved them. He cast them into the deepest ocean to be gone forever. And as Corey Ten Boom has said, and God has placed a sign out there that says absolutely no fishing allowed. Christ's love is abiding, it's abounding, and it's absolving. And it's when you meditate on the love of the Lord that you never lack fruit. You'll never be left wanting in your relationship with Christ. Meditation is what gets you contact with the water of the vine when all the other vines dry up. It gets you in contact with the love of the vine when all the other vines are cut off, when all the other vines are cut back, when all the other vines are cut up. It's drawing upon his word. It's drawing his word into yourself and the vitality of his love. That's the second truth we must believe. We must believe that Jesus is the true vine. Let's look lastly, quickly, at the last truth, the third truth that we must believe. We must believe that we are the branches. You know there are only two kinds of branches. Branches that bear fruit and are pruned to bear more fruit, and branches that don't and are punished, cut off, dried, and burned. It's that simple. The question is, which one are you? The question also is, who are the branches? You see, the branches are all attached. 
But the ones that don't bear fruit are cut off, dried, and burned. So who are they? What did Jesus have in mind that night when he said, you are the branches, and some branches bear fruit, and some branches don't? You see, there were two kinds of people in that room that night. There were those that bear fruit and those that don't. There were 11 that bore fruit, and there was one that did not. There were those who were remaining in, abiding in, attached to the vine, and there was that one who was cut off. You'll remember, Judas had that night walked away from Jesus fatally internally. He was called an apostate, a defector. He went out from us because he was not really of us, for if he had been of us, he would have remained with us. But he went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. Judas had been so close. He had been so close. And then he goes off and sets up a deal to have Jesus arrested, to get his 30 pieces of silver, to go from there to hang himself, only to be catapulted into hell. This is the reality, I think, behind the metaphor. This has to be what our Lord was thinking about that night. But what is so interesting to me about this passage is that Judas isn't there. So what does it mean? This means Jesus is saying this not to seal Judas's fate in the reader's mind, but I think to get the disciples and by extension you and me to examine ourselves as to whether or not we have real vital connection with the vine. Let me see if I can shed some light on what he's saying. Suppose I have an apple tree in my backyard and every year it grows dry, rotten, inedible apples and it drives my wife stinking crazy. She says, why do you have this apple tree if we can never use these apples? And so we think and, 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 I, and I ponder this. I mean, I, I love her and I want to help her. So I say, I think I can fix this. So the next day, she looks out the window, and I'm, I'm carrying a big, tall ladder and some branch cutters, an industrial-grade nail gun, and three bushels of red, delicious apples. And I climb up on the ladder, and I very judiciously cut off all of those inevitable apples, and I nail those delicious reds symmetrically around the tree. And from 100 yards, you would think that I am the greatest gardener in the history of the world. But upon closer look, wifey realizes what I've done. Now, what's going to happen to those apples? They're going to rot because they lack the vital connection to the tree. More importantly, what kind of apples is that tree going to grow the next year? The twisted, rotten, inevitable ones. Because there has been no organic change in that tree through an internal dynamic. Therefore, he says, I am convinced that much of what we do in attempt to prove our connection is nothing more than apple nailing. You say, but there is real fruit in my life, and I do have a vital connection with the true vine. But see, I think there is something else latent within these verses about our tendency, even as believers, to fall prey to the deadly disease that every single person in this room has. You know what that disease is? It's the wannabe Vine syndrome. It's a phrase I stole from H.B. Charles. He says we all have the want to be the true vine syndrome. He says, but what you need to realize is that you are just a branch. We could, we could put it in a proverb. Blessed is the man who knows that there is only one true vine and stops applying for the position. You are not the true vine. You are just a branch. And do you know what you deserve? You and I deserve to be taken away. You and I deserve to be thrown away. We are dried up and deserve to be gathered up and cast into the fire and be burned. But see, if the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, then the gospel is God substituting himself for man. You see, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, but God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. You could put it this way. The false Judas branches and the wannabe true vines assert themselves against God and put themselves where only God deserves to be, but Jesus Christ, the true vine, by sheer grace and at infinite cost to himself, sacrifices himself for them and puts himself where they deserve to be. He put himself where you were supposed to be, on the trellis of the cross, so that when you do what Charles Spurgeon 
said we must do, and that is abide hard by the cross. Your vital connection is restored. And Jesus' life, his character, and his grace is implanted in you. And once you are grafted in, no one or nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hand. This is what Jesus means when he says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood by faith abides in me and I in him. Did you know that most of the grapes eaten in the United States are grown in Napa Valley, California? In order for a vine of grapes to become fruitful, the branches of the vine must be elevated. The branches are tied to a post for support. As grapes develop and grow, the vine will become too heavy and begin to droop and drag on the ground. So elevation not only keeps the fruit off the ground, but also helps them get the full benefit of the sun. And after some time, the branches begin to spread along the posts to which they have been tied. Having been made stable, they are then free to climb and to spread. But see, for you and I to get the full benefit of the S-O-N, we must by faith plant ourselves in the true vine. And it's when you see Jesus Christ, the true vine, taking the slashing stroke of the hoe, he was forsaken and tortured so that we might not have to harvest what we have sown. He was made the low plant so that you could be elevated. Jesus is the bleeding vine. And the only post he had for support was the cross. And he wasn't tied to it. He was nailed to it. And to the degree that you tie yourself to that trellis, the trellis of the cross, you have more support than you could ever imagine. You have a stability that allows you to feel secure and cared for. And only then are you free to flourish, to climb, and to be fruitful. It's like what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. He says, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God. And if that's not enough, remember this. Jesus Christ is the only true vine that knows what it's like to be a branch. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, Then a, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Now watch this. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. In Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. In Jeremiah 33, 15, speaking of the new covenant, he says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Zechariah 6, 12 says, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. You say, but How? One more passage, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 in verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He says, For he grew up before him like a, a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, Jesus Christ, the true vine who became the branch, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the only vine who knows what it's like to be a branch, and in that sense, he is your sympathetic substitute. 
He understands what you are going through and will be with you every step of the way. And what is more, he took your place. In Ezekiel 15 and verse 8, the prophet declares that we, Israel, are like the wood of a vine and thus only fit to be burned. Now see Jesus Christ with your heart becoming the branch, the wood who was thrown into the fire for you. He was cut off so that you would only ever be cut back. And the more you dwell on who he is and what he did for you, then you will be able to say in your hearts, if you are willing to do that for me, then certainly I can bear fruit for you. There's a hymn that I love that I believe gets at the heart of what our lives are to be all about. And you know it well. It's called Abide With Me by Henry Francis Light. He was an Anglican minister in England, and the history of the hymn is fascinating. He penned the first few verses after visiting an old friend of his on his deathbed, and his friend was passing from this world into the next, and the only words he could find to say were, Abide with me. Abide with me. Abide with me. And so Henry Light wrote down the first few verses, but it wasn't until 27 years later when he himself was suffering from tuberculosis that he then finished the hymn. He was adamant that as he could see his days coming to a close, that he would preach to his congregation just one more time. And he did. And he preached a sermon on abiding with God. And he gave the the words of the hymn to his family, and it was shortly thereafter that he passed away. And it was at his funeral that the hymn, Abide With Me, was sung for the very first time. You know, there's a tragedy, though. The tragedy is that it has become so popularized that now millions sing that hymn with no true knowledge of the gospel that it speaks to. In the UK, it is sung every year at soccer games and rugby games just before kickoff. They sing, Abide With Me. Here are the lyrics. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay and all around I see, oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Here's my favorite stanza. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death O Lord, abide with me. Abide with me. Abide with me. May we never be guilty of singing this hymn in vain, but may this be our life's song. Take the gospel truths of this song and sing them out. Sing it and sing it and sing it again until the music passes into your heart. The gospel is already singing, and all you have to do is get out its music and sing along. Do you know how to do that? Because if you can, you will grow in your relationship with God and adoration and joy will fill your heart and you will abide with Christ. As we close, there are three lessons from this passage that have profound implications for us tonight. Let me just list them off to you quickly. The first is a refusal to abide is barrenness, so don't chance it. Let's imagine I snipped a piece off of the pretty vine that grew outside my window. The vine's name is Christian. And suppose I, I purposely selected a piece that was extremely healthy looking to begin with. It was growing. It had little shoots on it reaching upward. It was deep green and a luxurious color. And finally, imagine that I put it in my study in a great environment right between two books, robust in faith and all the prayers of the Bible. You know what? Those books didn't do a bit of good for that vine. It just began to wilt even though it was surrounded by good books, a good environment, quietness, and ease. As soon as it was snipped, cut off from the true vine, it lost all of its value and fruitfulness. Friends, let me give you an equation. All things plus everything minus abiding in Christ equals nothing. 
all things plus everything minus abiding in Christ, the true vine, equals nothing. That's why Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Secondly, the result of abiding is fruitfulness. So don't miss it. Listen, if you choose to live in dependence, oh my, you will be like the well-watered tree planted by streams of water that draws its nutrients from rivers of living water that never cease. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Finally, recognize that abiding is joyful, loving obedience. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't forget it. Take a very honest look at your life and ask yourself these three questions. Am I in Christ? Am I abiding in Christ? And if so, what can I do to promote produce? If the answer is yes to those three questions, then you are living in joyful, loving obedience. A refusal to abide is barrenness. Don't chance it. The result of abiding is fruitfulness. Don't miss it. And recognize that abiding is joyful, loving obedience. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for a sweet time this evening to think about who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. You are our gardener. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for being willing to Get your hands dirty so that we may bear much fruit. Thank you for your grace that even though there are so many times in our lives where we are not bearing fruit as we should, that you will dig around it, that you will prune us, and that you will provide for us the water of your word that we may again bear fruit. Jesus, thank you for being the true vine. It is our prayer this evening that we would maintain, that we would sustain, and that we would grow in our vital connection with you, that we may bear much fruit for your glory. Holy Spirit, may the gospel this evening fall on good ground, and may Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his precious and powerful name that we pray. Amen.